And once, you know, sometimes there are conflicts and we have to make hard choices. But in general, I think approaching it with an optimism that says we can do everything and we will try. And then expressing that is, you know, it, that goes a long way with people. When you show that you are making an effort to deliver value in the way they need it. Hi everyone, welcome to Designdrives, the podcast where I explore why, how, and what designers are driving forward. The mission is to interview the most forward-thinking designers and innovative creators on the planet to inspire and help you to reach your full creative potential and to help you to make an impact on the world. In the episode, I chat with Gavin Iverster, Vice President of Design at Bernard Olufsen in Denmark, and we talk about design leadership as well as what it's like to design for some of the world's best brands. In the past, Gavin made incredible experiences working in different design environments and leading design initiatives at companies such as Puma, Under Armour, Nike, and started out initially his career at Apple, but also has founded its own design agency and worked on design consulting projects. During the episode, we talk on what it's like to work in some of the world's best design brands and teams and what he learned along the way. Your product is your biggest brand ambassador. This was one of the key learnings in the episode. And we talk about why the soul of a brand is hidden in every design brief and why you need to change the design brief and the product brief in order to change and reposition the brand and transform the brand. The brand is basically within the product DNA. We also dive into leadership. What are key skills for him and challenges as a design leader? But we also talk about how to grow design within a business and make business impact as a design leader. Further, we also dig into the future of technology and lifestyle, two areas that further and further intersect and increasingly coming together. Learnings he made working in the area of technology in Silicon Valley, but then also in lifestyle products working at Nike and Ben I hope you enjoyed the episode. So I'm here with Gavin Iverster. Really looking forward to the conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you today. So I think it would be really great for the audience if you could just give them a context about your journey. You have been King experience at a lot of different big companies and a lot of you know great work experiences, which we're going to touch on in the podcast. So I think it would be sure. really great for the audience if you could just give them a high level overview about the different things in your career, how it all started out for you and where you are right now. So, wow, if we start, if we talk about where it all started out for me, I'm going all the way back to age three when I was able to identify every car on the road, make, year and model. I was a car nut as a tiny kid. And, you know, there was a Ford Mustang in the family and I could tell you the difference between a 1965 Mustang and a 1966 Mustang, and then in 1967. Wow. And, you know, when I sort of look back at why did I become a designer or how, or, you know, what even got me interested, it, it's really, I think, goes all the way back to this love of beautiful machines that began when I was, you know, a single digit age. And as a kid, you know, I grew up in California, I was skateboarding and racing BMX, and, and I also had my grandfather's drawing board in my bedroom where I would design skateboards, and I would design my ideal BMX bike, and I was creating brochures, which were just pencil sketches and pages bound together by kite string, but I was creating brochures of my own car product line, so I had my own car brand. And I would do, you know, the full line brochure each year for like three years in a row when I, I don't know how old I was, probably about nine, 10, 11, like something like that. So I've always wanted to be a designer on some level, or at least as far back as, you know, that. And I kind of describe my career as being a little bit like the movie Forrest Gump, where he just keeps lucking into amazing situations. And I think, you know, the difference between Forrest Gump and me is he doesn't really seem to realize how lucky he is. But I grew up in Silicon Valley and hated school as a kid. I was drawing all the time, but I didn't find classes all that challenging. And so when I finished high school, I just wanted to be done with school for a while. And now I would say I took a gap year. But really what I did is I just didn't want to go to university without a purpose in mind. And I heard about a job from a relative and applied for it and, and thought, well, if I get this job, I'll just, I'll, I'll wait on university for a minute. 
And I'll look around this company and see if I can figure out what my calling is. And the job was a forklift driver unloading trucks, but it was at Apple Computer in 1981. So 1981, I started for $4.35 an hour driving a forklift and was able to find some mentors who kind of turned me on to design. And I understood finally that, you know, industrial designer was the job title that I ultimately wanted because that's what car designers were. And so I also was mentored on, you know, universities and everything. And so I, my grand plan was I was going to go to school, become a car designer, and that would be my career. And ultimately what happened is I stayed at Apple. I got some exposure to car design and it was some American car company designers. And I'll, I will not name the company, but I felt like the designers didn't love the product as much as they should. And here I was working in this amazing culture of Apple where everybody was really young and just dedicated and hammering hard to make really exceptional products. And I just didn't see that passion in the car designers. And so I, in design school, I just never completed the trans track. I stayed on the product track and ultimately got very lucky at Apple. And there's a whole story about Steve Jobs and frog design and, and why this exactly happened. But I was working as a junior guy in the engineering team designing a particular Macintosh computer from the inside out. And all of a sudden it had no industrial design team. And I put my hand up and said, hey, can I take a shot at this? And, and the commitment was, yeah, sure, we'll build five or six foam models, I think is what we did for the first step. Anyway, long story short, I ended up shipping my first Mac that I designed before I finished my design degree. And that was the beginning of my career as a designer. And I stayed a few more years there. But that, you know, that I feel like the interest was always there. And there was always this fascination with beautiful machines. And I had this incredible benefit of coming up through the engineering organization at Apple. So after the forklift, I moved into a clerk job in engineering and just kind of moved through some different jobs there. But I came into design with a super solid technical understanding and stayed and designed the first PowerBook and some other, some other things that, that got a lot of attention. And what did happen after your time at Apple? You said multiple years at Apple, right? So yeah, so I was at Apple for a total of 11 years. And at the wise old age of 29, I decided I didn't want to get stuck there. I didn't want to be typecast and I didn't want to be a lifer in one place. And I was envious of my friends and consultancies who got to work on all kinds of variety. And so I felt like I was in a spot where I could maybe go try running my own business. And I wanted that experience, mm -hmm. but I was really chasing variety in my portfolio. So I left Apple to start my own consultancy right there in Palo Alto and ultimately did that for four years, grew that to a six person design firm called Tonic Industrial Design and, and had a blast doing it. And, you know, we worked on sunglasses and bike helmets and tools and cell phones, which, you know, think back, Apple didn't have one at that point. So I got the variety that I wanted and really worked with some fantastic blue chip clients like Sony and Samsung, et cetera. And ultimately I left that role because I was recruited by Nike for a job that had a piece of learning built into it that I really wanted. And that was the ability to manage a portfolio of products. So what I sort of figured out was a few years into running my consultancy, things were going extremely well and I had a plan to double the size of the office. And when Nike came calling, I, you know, I engaged in the conversation because I love the brand, but it caused me to kind of look at my own firm and my plans. And I realized what I could do at Nike, I could not do in my own firm in, you know, in the foreseeable future. And that was manage a portfolio of products. So in my consultancy, it was one product at a time. And, you know, we weren't IDO sized and we were not going to get asked by, you know, a giant company to do 20 products at once and create a giant product line statement. So I closed down my design firm and went to Nike in order to learn how to do that. And also to get closer to really emotionally driven product. So computers tend to, especially at that time, they were very feature cost benefit driven and not so emotionally purchased as they have become. And sneakers are absolutely design emotion driven and also functionally driven. And I wanted to get sort of that one step closer to fashion. So 
that was the move to Nike. And should I keep going and just kind of give the quick sure. run through the sure. So so Nike was the reason I was hired into that job is for my ability to speak design to the business side and business to the design side. And you know, the team that hired me sort of saw me as this necessary glue to kind of elevate everybody's game. And obviously I stepped in as the head of, well, maybe not obviously, but I, here's what happened. I stepped in as the head of footwear design at Nike and I had never designed a shoe. So my job obviously was not to be the best footwear designer in the company. Yeah, It was to help the world's best footwear designers do their best work. And that was that sort of design to business, business to design piece. So it was really keeping people on target and being more business aware and understanding how to, how to do that. And then the next role was at Puma, where I took a much bigger job in a much smaller company. And so I was head of the footwear division for seven years at Puma and responsible for advanced innovation into product management, design, development, or engineering, and then launching all the products. So we had the full product cycle from initial ideas and experiments all the way to bringing it to market. And, and that was a fascinating moment because I inherited a really broken culture that just was full of infighting. And it was just discoordinated. So the pieces weren't really feeding each other and it wasn't a smooth chain. And, you know, through a lot of effort on everyone's part, we were able to turn that into a very smooth cycle of identifying opportunities and ultimately shipping really innovative design-driven product. And we, we drove a lot of growth. So that business went from under a couple hundred million, I think, in revenue to 2 billion euros and 80 million pairs of shoes a year by the time I left. And so it was this incredible design education or really business education that, you know, kept me on my toes the entire time, but it also kept me out of the country. And so I was based in Boston and so was the head of apparel and the CEO was spending half his time there. And the head of marketing was also American. He was traveling constantly and I had little kids at home and I was really worried I was going to be, you know, that dad and the old joke, you know, where the kids say, mommy, who's that man in the kitchen? <laughs> I did not want to be that, that dad. Mm -hmm. So I got out of the sneaker business, which is really at that time. And maybe it still is. It was just a tr crazy traveling circus, especially working for a German company, but being based in the U S and then production was in Asia. I was, you know, there were times when I could was very easy to work 24 hours a day because I had people everywhere in the globe mm -hmm. always working. If I tried to stay live and answer their questions, by the time I was finishing with one group, then the next group around the planet would start arriving in their offices. And so it was a bit of a crazy life. And I moved to Nashville, Tennessee to be chief creative officer of Gibson Guitar, which on paper was a dream job for a few reasons. One, it was another category change. And by this point, I had found that super energizing. I loved going from technology to sneakers and, you know, was looking forward to learning another whole business and, and having that energy. And two, I'm a musician and a guitar nut. So, you know, I walked into Gibson knowing a lot about their product line with a, just a ton of enthusiasm, but the company was a mess and I really barely got to do the job at all. And I was only, I ran away from Gibson after six months. Gibson has since, you know, it took about 10 years after that happened, the, the ownership changed. So I think Gibson's on a great path now, but at that time it just was a mess. And so I wound up in Nashville, you know, really kind of a place I never expected to even visit and fell in love with it. So I stayed in Nashville without a plan B and just did a lot of entrepreneurial things and consulting and had a blast. Applied my design thinking to categories that I never really would have thought about before. So banking and healthcare. Also got to do quite a bit of work in entertainment, working with country artists and working on their commercial strategy. And then out of that came building rum brand from scratch, building a whole standalone company with a few partners and a country singer named Kenny Chesney. I had joined in with some partners in a company called Flow Thinkery. And uh, for two years, 
flow really was just blue chair bay rum just building this thing as fast as we could because we were trying to hit a tour target. But, you know, the payoff from that was had a lot of fun, stood at the back of the stage with, you know, 55,000 people in a stadium and got to see what that looked like from that vantage point. But also we hold the record for the highest first year sales of a startup spirits brand ever because of the way we did it. It was a super data-driven exercise and just a ton of fun. But then, you know, so to kind of cap off the story, I was consulting and got approached by an old friend from Nike and Puma, who, you know, is still one of my best friends. And he was in a leadership role at Bang & Olufsen and asked me to just step in and sort of help guide some things about sort of design language development. And I did that and things snowballed very quickly. And I was the head of design at Bang & Olufsen all of a sudden, and less than, I think, less than a year later, moved my family. Now, about one year after I began consulting there, I moved my family. So five of us and two dogs all arrived in Denmark mm -hmm. in uh, the fall of 2018, and we've been here since. Yeah, quite a move then to Copenhagen. Thank you for sharing that, you know, large journey and all of the different experiences that you had. This is uh, really amazing. And there are so many things we could dive into. I mean, one thing to point out is that getting different experiences throughout a career, when if it's consulting and kind of in-house, I think it's why I, what I always say also to young people who are starting out to get experience on the different lens because it's a very different way of designing but you had it beyond that not even in-house and consulting you also were in completely different verticals and yeah. i think they really like what you were pointing out in terms of your transition you actually moved from a more technical area to area that was more emotional where it was fashion and then later on at bang olufsen it's i mean it also has a connection to fashion in a certain way because if you look at the products they're very emotional and yes so of the technical aspects of it is almost hidden in the product. Absolutely. And, you know, Bang & Olufsen really, for me, felt like the coming together of two sides of my career because I had done this very fashion-driven piece, which is mm -hmm. also still always functional. Sneakers are a really interesting product category because everything you do affects how they work. But, but it's very emotionally driven and sneakers are a design war with a really fast pace. Yeah. And then on the opposite side was my past in, you know, my beginning and kind of the engineering side of Apple. And BNO really was the coming together of both of those because the emotional piece is absolutely there. But, you know, arguably every BNO product that we shipped while I was in that role is also a computer. It's not just an audio product because it takes a computer to, you know, to turn streaming digits into sound. And one of BNO's strengths is using DSP to control sound to make it sound better and just to make it a better experience. So, you know, there's a pretty powerful computer in every one of those things. And I really enjoyed getting back to the technical challenge after working in, you know, sneakers, banking, which definitely does have some technical pieces to it. Healthcare, also very technical, but not making hardware in terms of, you know, the part that I was working on and booze does not have any technical piece to it at all. So it was really a lot of fun to get back to get to get into BNO and have those two sides come together. Yeah, absolutely. And I would love to talk a little bit with you also later on specifically audio. You've been mentioning already the computers that are in there and like how the audio space yeah. is evolving. But before we uh, go into that area, since we already talked about your journey, since you have been working in so, with so many different brands and in so many different industries, I think something that's often underestimated is the understanding that a great design for a brand, the, the level of understanding you maybe also need when it comes to the brand, where it comes from, what's the heritage, what actually is the right design for that brand and how do you actually craft something that is actually along with the, the brand and where the brand wants to go. So getting that brand intuition basically in your design yeah. process, this takes yes. a bit of time. And if you see new people joining a design team that, for example, an in-house design team that don't have that experience Yet it always takes a bit of time, you know, it's, it, there's also the advantage of having a fresh perspective, but, you know, at some point you understand this is all the way from how do you shape a button on an interface to be according to brand colors, but then also, I mean, even the kind of overall product experience, industrial experience, how do you deal with a decision if you put a radius on there or not, right? Yeah. So I was yeah, wondering absolutely. a little bit, how do you, like with all of these transitions that you had, 
how did you always approach this sort of stepping into this new brand and stepping into this kind of new area and kind of getting an idea about how to design for the brand? How, how long did it take for you uh, with the different steps and how did you approach that learning process? How long it took, I'll have to think about. But, you know, the learning process for me, I try to take advantage of, you know, sort of the reality around me at any given point. And I think the naivety that you bring into a new brand or a new job is extremely valuable. So walking in not knowing anything and asking stupid questions you, is your best opportunity to learn and you kind of don't get that chance twice. So one thing I often tell people is, you know, when you're new in a job, ask all those questions, sit back a little bit on really doing anything or proposing any big changes, because I really agree with you. It does take time to absorb it. And, you know, once you get to the point where you think you understand a brand's story, come back and, you know, write it down and come back six months later and see what you think about it, because you will definitely understand it better the longer you wait. But what I tell people is write down all of your observations, everything, and especially the things that you think just don't make sense and they're wrong. And, you know, why doesn't the company do it this way? Because often that fresh perspective is more right than the people who've been in the company for a long time. And, you know, there's incredible value to that outsider perspective that you lose when you become one of us. And so, you know, if you write those things down and write them in a, <laughs> in a hardbound book that you will not lose and come back to them, they're incredibly valuable. So I tend to come into new jobs very openly ignorant. And I tell people, hey, I don't know anything. Here's a question. Tell me how this works. Tell me why that is. And I also like to see things firsthand. So I'm a huge factory nerd. I love to see factories from the inside out and really kind of understand how things are made because understand how they're made. If you can come up with a new way of making things, you give yourself the power of designing truly new things. But it's, you know, it's really a process of respecting that ignorance and trying to get the most mileage out of it. But ultimately, I think what you have to equip yourself in terms of brand is to really understand the essence. And that comes from questions like, how are we going to change the world? Which is often a question that catches people off guard, especially in sneakers. It's like, oh, I thought we were just going to make some more shoes. Well, <laughs> how are we going to make those different? How, why come to work to design new shoes if you don't have a thought about how are you going to do it different and better next time? So understanding the essence of the brand through questions like, you know, how are you going to change the world? What is the company good at? Where are the unmet needs in the market? And a little bit, you know, respecting the history of the brand as well. I think that matters, but it's really getting to that essence of what it's about and What is your mission? I'm not sure if I'm answering the question. No, absolutely. Besides what you were mentioning in the end, I also really agree to your point that, you know, you should not hold back your questions, basically, that you have when stepping into basically a new role. And like you said, like collecting them. And then actually, it's an advantage, like you say, you are less biased around decision making, because the more vertical you go into a certain brand, the quicker you are with making decision and like finding decision and feeling what's right. But at the same time, you also become more biased and sort of don't have a look basically on the, the bigger picture. So it's actually the advantage of, you know, coming in with a fresh perspective and should, that's where innovation happens, right? That's why people hire consultants because they have, they have they're already so deep into the topic that sometimes they it's lose very the, hard. Yeah. Uh, they so lose so biased about a lot of things. Right. So, and I, I think there's another spin on that perspective, which is that the moment you enter a company is the moment that you are closest to being a user. The deeper you get into the company, the longer you're there, the more you drift away from knowing what that feels like. Mm -hmm. And that's part of why those early observations are so valuable, because ultimately you have to listen to users always. If you're not careful, the longer you're inside a company, the more users' voices get drowned out by, well, you know, this function in the company will say no to that because they said no to this other thing that was similar. And I know this avenue is closed off because so-and-so doesn't like it, or we tried to take it to market and it didn't work. And you start to have this chorus of reasons why things can't happen. 
users don't care about any of those reasons. So they just want what they want and they want you to overcome those things. So the longer you sort of become immersed in those reasons why not, the further you drift away from making people happy. Absolutely, right? The later, the more you get into the, the brand, the more you're less coming from the user perspective if you're not careful, right? And also yeah. you're much more sort of uh, primed with all the argumentation why things are a certain way, right? I think one thing that's also interesting when we speak about brand is that there is an interlinkage obviously with product design, user experience design, design in general, and brand. And sometimes these can be different departments, even in an organization, right? You have the marketing right. team maybe handling the brand and you have the design team on the product side that is working on the product. Yeah. But actually that even the design influences, but the brand is also influencing the design. They're very interlinked. And specifically, since you have been in, in a lot of leadership positions, I guess there is obviously always a lot of conversation. What is actually the brand? How could we move it forward, right? And there could be a positive inspiration from both sides if it's not in the same team, which is also happening in, in, in some cases. So have you made any experiences on that end, basically? How basically product, let's say product design teams and brand design teams can sort of inform each other inspire each other vice versa and like how do you actually move forward well so let's let's break that down a little bit because if i listened correctly i think you i heard you talk about sort of product design teams and ux and then product design teams and brand and the approach to both is probably really similar but i'll take on the ux piece first and say that you know my first job was at Apple, a company that controlled the hardware and the software. And, you know, this is where I claim a little bit of advantage over Forrest Gump. I was smart enough in the moment to understand how powerful that was. And that was in contrast to, you know, the competition was IBM working with Microsoft. And so IBM and coincidentally, my father worked at IBM. So we had this, you know, kind of ongoing joke about the competition between Apple and IBM once IBM got into personal computers. But what I saw was that IBM couldn't really control the experience and couldn't create a great UX in their computers because they didn't control what Microsoft did. Whereas Apple had, you know, both sides of that equation and that's incredibly powerful. So, so when I stepped into Bang & Olufsen, what I found was a team that was a little bit broken in that the UXers and the product designers were not sitting together, didn't really consider themselves to be the same team. They had, you know, kind of separate management and didn't spend time together. And I put the two groups together as fast as, as I could because I understood the power of that seamlessness that I had seen and, and worked with at Apple. So, you know, I, we talked about a little earlier, you know, kind of the, the whole reason for B&O's existence is the emotional power of music. And the number one goal of B&O is to keep you in the moment. So why wouldn't you use the power of sort of, you know, the hardware and the software, the UX and the industrial design together to help people get to that musical experience they wanna have as fast and as frictionless as possible. So that's what we did. And, you know, I really, I put the UX and uh, industrial design teams together. We had product design reviews together and really treated solutions more holistically. And I think, you know, the result is now starting to trickle onto the market and you're seeing solutions where, you know, the feeling of using the products is much more natural. And we've got the, you know, kind of the minimum number of steps and things feel really intuitive and lively. So there's a responsiveness to the products that you know you kind of can't get if hardware is triggering software you don't control so so that's that um the brand question it, there's so many ways to answer that but at the end of the day product is often the most powerful expression of a brand and sometimes it's the only one so for a lot of people you know they may need, they may experience a product before they ever see anything the brand or the company has ever said about it. So imagine if you're not a Bang & Olufsen fan and you visit somebody's house and they have an amazing Bang & Olufsen setup 
and you experience that first, you will have a brand impression from that that was totally formed by product. So there cannot be a gap between what the brand says the brand is and what the products say the brand is. So, you know, when you look at brand marketing specifically, it has to be working from the same essence of what the brand is about. How are we trying to change the world? What are we good at? You know, why do we exist as the product, you know, as everybody in product creation, including design, you know, is looking at everybody has to be kind of starting from that same essence, that same end goal. And then, you know, when you look at product marketing or, you know, sort of marketing media, marketing communications, there was a big shift in the world somewhere between 10 and 20 years ago when the internet became forum for connecting with your friends. So social media has changed us all from people who used to passively just absorb messages through TV, which were very controlled, to now being people who listen to our friends. And in general, you know, a corporate message coming through paid media isn't very convincing and people aren't super open to it. They don't really want to hear it. So companies still spend a lot of money that way, but what's 10 times more credible is people just listen to their friends. So what seems to work the best in a world where people listen to their friends is just the truth. Then the thing is, if you veer away from the truth and try to sort of make up a story like 50 years ago, like a lot of marketing was, when I told you cigarettes were healthy and everything else, people will find that untruth and present the truth you know, as hard as they can on the internet and they will get an audience. So there's kind of the carrot and stick scenario. You cannot, if you try to make up a story that is inauthentic, you will be called out. But the carrot is there's a big reward for simply designing things in an interesting way and then just artfully telling the truth. And so to my mind, marketing begins at the product brief long before you start to design anything. And the reason is this, people do not tell their friends about something that's 2% better. It's not interesting. So you don't use your kind of your social media capital to talk about, oh, I, I bought this thing and it's slightly improved. You tell people, you tell your friends about things that change your lives or that are so much better. And so it's really important with almost all products that you have a first or a most or a best defined in that product brief before you ever start specking out and designing the product. You have to know how is this, why are we doing this product and how is it gonna change the world? I keep coming back to those kind of those two questions, but it does go down to the product level. How is this thing gonna be a first, a most or a best ever so that you know, there's a real reason for it to be, and there's a reason for people to tell each other about it because that's your marketing. Really love a lot of insights that you have been sharing. Specifically, I think the kind of overarching topic I think you have been touching on, basically the product is the biggest brand ambassador, right? And the mm -hmm. product, I really yeah. like what you were saying that, you know, the product brief is actually the biggest chance also to move a brand forward and a great opportunity basically that you can then use basically from a marketing side basically later on the, the, the final product that you can use right. later on from a marketing side to grow the brand maybe into a new direction but the product already has to tell the story and the product is the gateway to do that really interesting i mean if the product don't reflect where you're trying to you know go with your brand then it's going to be also very tough so Super interesting. And I think as well, you know, people in general are becoming more and more sophisticated about design. And what I see is pretty positive responses when you just, when you kind of tell the story and the logic behind design. So, you know, one of my storylines at Bang & Olufsen was purposeful design and really sort of exposing to people the logic behind all the decisions that are in a product that You know, if you didn't design it, if you weren't on the team creating it, you may not pick out exactly all the differences and why they're there. But one of the things I've had a lot of fun doing is telling those stories on LinkedIn. So if you follow me on LinkedIn for the last few months, every couple of weeks, maybe sometimes more often than that, 
I'll post a design story and it's hashtag design story. And unfortunately that's not a unique hashtag. So you will find other people's posts as well, but that was the best I could come up with in the moment. But my design stories are all about the logic behind products and kind of just exposing what we learned, what that made us decide, and then how we solve that with, with a design. And they're super fun to write and I've been getting a lot of positive feedback on those. Super interesting. So I think we can also put a link to that in the show notes for people to look up the stories. So one thing that is, you already mentioned about Bang Olufsen and basically how things have been changing there. The audio space in general has been you know, there's a lot of change, even specifically also maybe from one of your old or former employees, basically, they're also basically changing a lot of things. So, but in general, there is just a lot of yeah changes that are happening in the audio space and also moving forward with new technologies. So could you talk a little bit more about where you see the audio space evolving? I mean, specifically for Bang Olufsen and what you can see there is that, you know, it's, it's really stepping away and it, it has been always really stepping away from actually a technical product and actually a, a furniture. You could see this to some degree tickle over also into, you know, areas like um, Ikea products, not so much in terms of what Apple is doing, but I think overall as a, a trend. Could you talk a little bit about maybe challenges and opportunities and where you see the audio space going? I can, and I'm, pr I'm probably going to change the subject a little bit here because there's a topic related to this that I'm super interested in. But to kind of quickly address, I think on the technical side, you know, 3D sound and a whole bunch of other, you know, innovative ways of presenting sound that are, that are just richer and more information filled, those are coming. And I think every brand will wind up with all of those. So those are kind of the technical trends that are often delivered or driven by, you know, computing capabilities and, you know, one person makes a breakthrough and everybody else copies it. So I think those things are going to happen. I think what's interesting about Bang & Olufsen is, you know, the company is known for beautiful premium product and it does behave more like furniture in your environment and the piece that people are not as aware of is the incredible DSP expertise so you know the way I describe what the engineers do at Bang & Olufsen is they are controlling time to a ridiculously high tight tolerance and they're creating acoustic magic tricks so there's things like beam forming, which I don't think is unique to Bang Olufsen, but it's the, you know, the ability to use two different speakers to create the sound waves in a way that they support each other and it directs the sound to a particular location. That is super interesting. And Bang Olufsen, I think, will continue to exercise that strength in the extremely fine digital control of sound through managing time and placing sound waves in a room. And the more they can understand about the shape of a room and its reflective qualities, and the stronger the, you know, the computing power in the, in the speakers and the more speakers in the room, et cetera, the greater those abilities become and they can create illusions of space and they can put sound exactly where you want it, et cetera. So that's what I see that, you know, sort of down the road for them is, I think people will slowly become more and more aware of just how good they are at that. But where I think is really interesting to think about sound and media in general is I really believe the way we work just got changed forever by the pandemic and we are never going back to the way it was. So I think there's incredible opportunity in kind of re-engineering the way people collaborate. And even this conversation we're having over Zoom right now is something that we probably would not have done this way two years ago, even as recently as that. And I hate to name a brand, but you remember how bad Skype was? Skype was something that we all kind of dreaded. And sometimes it was really phenomenal, but often it was really disappointing. And now sort of the base level of these collaboration tools has gotten to a point where People feel the freedom to work from anywhere, and that's going to change a lot. So I think we're never going back to the same amount of office space that we had. We are never going back to the same level of business travel that we had. I think that's going to have a positive effect on the environment. It's going to create savings for companies, but it also creates investment in the home 
So I see a lot of spending shifting towards the home, which has already happened over the last year. And the role of sound in that is just going to continue to elevate. So right now we are, I think there's sort of two areas of opportunity. One is we're very forgiving of bad sound still. And the quality of the audio that we hear when we interact is incredibly important in how good the emotional connection is between two people. And there's so much nuance that you miss when you're not in the same room with somebody, but you can get a lot of it back with great sound quality. So that's going to be one thing where I think the role of sound in enhancing work and collaboration remotely is going to just continue to be really important and there will be innovation there. But the other one is, you know, think about as the pandemic starts to get under control and people become a little bit on the move now, we're not going back to sitting in an office five days a week full time, which means people are going to be expecting to be able to work from anywhere. And where that gets really interesting is in the transitions. So I've had a lot of experiences where I've taken a call in the car and then continued on the call as I walked, you know, into the house or into the office or somewhere else, and then sat down at a computer and maybe, you know, continued the call from there. And those transitions can be rough. Depending on the platform you're using, they can actually be pretty good. They're a lot better than they used to be. They used to be impossible. I think there's a lot of opportunity to, in sort of the kind of the seamless handoff of you know, conversations, media, so that they can follow you around wherever you go and you don't sort of have to drop a call or fight with the technology. And it really all goes back to the same thing. Technology always needs to be in service of the experience that users want to have. And the more you ever drag users out of that experience and into the technology, the more you're kind of just on the wrong track. But that's where I think, you know, nobody really knows what work is going to look like in five years, but I think audio quality will be a really important factor in that and it will continue to evolve. I really like your point uh, in regards to transitions and you know, obviously I obviously totally agree to your point that it's becoming more and more important. But yeah, specifically, how do you manage these transitions? Specifically, you have different software providers trying to handle these transitions and you have different ecosystems and so on. So I think it's pretty interesting. And yeah, how do you manage that process smoothly? Super interesting. I would love to touch on the topic of design leadership at the end. Uh -huh. um, you have been you know, a design leader at many different you know, industries and, and locations sure. and different teams. What, from your experience, what do you think are key elements of great design leadership? Number one is probably the key element of all leadership, which is simply listening. And that word has a few different meanings in this context. It's listening to users and it's listening to your team. I am a firm believer that creativity can come from anywhere. And I like to tell people it's everyone's job. And I know that makes people a little bit uncomfortable at times. You know, there are a lot of people in a, in a company who will say, well, I'm not creative, but I refuse to believe it. I think actually everybody is, everyone's job can benefit from kind of a creative approach to just really never accepting that good enough is good enough and, and always trying to kind of invent new ways and better ways of doing things. So, you know, listening to your team for great ideas, but also being aware of how they're developing is incredibly important. And for a company to stay on track, listening to users or the audience or, you know, however you want to talk about customers is also incredibly important because your brand is not as much as you want to believe it is, your brand is not what you say it is. Your brand is what they say it is. And, you know, ultimately what you're trying to do is create that impression and create, you know, deliver that value. But it's only working if users are happy and they're coming back and they're actually getting the value that they want. So listening to them is just incredibly important. So. You know, I think that's, those are two really important things around the idea of listening. But then, you know, as we talked about a lot earlier in the conversation, just focusing on the essence is incredibly important and not just kind of getting lost in the stream. So, you know, common mistake is falling in love with features and just sort of adding features and, you know, version 2.0 of a product is 1.0 plus a feature plus a feature and then version 3.0. 
same story. And, you know, again, if you're not listening, you can go down that path. And if you're not paying attention to the, what the essence of the brand is, why are we here? How are we trying to change the world? What are we great at? You know, how are we going to make an impact? And really, what is that first, most, or best in the product? If you lose sight of those things, then what you have is activity. You don't, but you're not building something great. And I think, you know, activity doesn't really need leadership. You can, you know, you can uh, throw people a task and they can be busy producing things. But leadership is when you sort of help people stay on track to align with the business opportunity, align with what users need and create something that truly stands out and, and is head and shoulders above, you know, what the competition is offering. So, you know, for me, it's, those are kind of the core. And then there's basic people skills around, you know, being a good communicator and developing your team. And then really, honestly, like the last thing I would mention is design sense. I was in a super interesting conversation earlier today with Mauro Porcini, who said he's the head of design. And it was just a casual get to know you conversation. But he, he said, you know, you either have that or you don't, which I think is incredibly insightful because, and I agree with him, it's not what makes, you know, being the best designer is not what makes you a good design leader. It's really about how do you get creative people to do their best work and see the bigger picture and how do you sort of orchestrate, you know, products and brand messages to arrive at, you know, a really clear expression of the essence of what you're trying to do? Yeah, totally makes sense. I mean, really love the overview of, of topics that you have mentioning. I mean, as a design leader, you're also the ambassador of design within an organization, right? You basically have to communicate it. You have to communicate why design has to be involved, why design needs funding. Uh, one of the things and one of the learnings I made in the podcast talking to many design leaders is the aspect of providing value to other stakeholders as a mm, gateway also exactly. to make sure that they understand that you can provide value to them. And it's yeah. going to take time to build up these relations and basically become that partner for progress, innovation, and solving problems that could be beyond the day-to-day -day design activity that where people already know, okay, this is a topic for designers, but where they actually um, see the design team as a partner to solve even business problems and putting design into these conversations. And I think at that point, you know, design is very mature within an organization, but I would really love also to hear your point of view uh, in terms of like, what was your experience? Maybe how do you grow design maturity within an organization? So first, let me say, I, I'm not sure I say it better than you just did. Uh, that was, I think, a very apt description of how design takes a more mature role in an organization and delivers value to kind of to all points in it. You know, I don't believe that, you know, in life, you have to please everyone and that everyone needs to like you. However, if you're doing a good job as a design team within a, a large organization, you should have friends all over the company because, and what's interesting, and I, I realized this quite a few years ago as we were, I don't even remember which job this was in, but we were, we're in the midst of reorganizing the company. So reorganizing, you know, org charts, but also floor plans. And we were trying to place people by function in a logical arrangement to kind of enhance workflow by shortening distances between functions and just to enhance, you know, that people would bump into each other and have a, a valuable conversation. And what we realized is that design is the one function in a company that is really in the center and sees all sides of the company. So the floor plan that made sense was design being, and this sounds a little too design centric, literally, But the floor plan that made sense was design in the middle of a circle and the other functions around the outside. But as you said, it's taking care of those other functions and demonstrating the business value of what you're doing and really speaking their language. And for me, you know, that goes back to an observation somebody made about me as I was being recruited into that Nike role. I didn't go to business school and I didn't feel like I was speaking business language, but I did understand the greater context of trying to advance the business through design. And I think that is one of the keys is just to demonstrate, you know, that you are on the same team 
And I think, you know, the, the sort of the old school, really dysfunctional view of design is that designers, you know, delay everything and make it more expensive. And, you know, if you behave like that, you will not be seen as a good corporate citizen. But frankly, I don't know anyone who does. And it really comes back to the same quality that makes, I think, good design leaders, makes them good, you know, kind of good corporate citizens and makes design good corporate citizens. And that's listening. So listening and understanding what those other stakeholders need out of what you're doing and really having kind of a service attitude of, you know, looking at how can we not only design this product, but let's design it in a way that also serves those other needs. That's totally possible. And you know, one thing I love to say to people is design is an inherently optimistic pursuit. If you are a designer, you start every day you know, believing that you can make things better. And I'm one of those people who carries that optimism maybe to an extreme. I don't believe there's a conflict between making beautiful product and making highly functional product. Sometimes you will run into, you know, a feature that you wish you could afford on a product or something. But in general, there's no reason not to take into account kind of the broad corporate functions of, you know, okay, I need to consider manufacturability of this part. And, you know, if, if you're really good and you're clever, you can still make a beautiful part that satisfies users' needs and is also highly manufacturable. And it's, you know, you can definitely say my point of view is a little bit naive because I want to wrap my arms around, you know, every problem and I want all the good outcomes to happen. And once, you know, sometimes there are conflicts and you have to make hard choices, but in general, I think approaching it with an optimism that says we can do everything and we will try. And then expressing that is, you know, that goes a long way with people. When you show that you are making an effort to deliver value in the way they need it. Absolutely agree. And there was a lot of different interesting points that you are bringing up. I mean, specifically the uh, optimism, right? Design is an area of where you just need to be optimistic about the future, right? If you're not, yeah. that's the wrong profession because we always need to have that attitude of uh, tomorrow is going to be better than yesterday and we're going to make it better than we have yeah. been doing it in the past, right? So yes. as its core, it's it's such a, there's so much optimism needed basically with design at its core. I mean, Gavin, thank you so much for sharing all of that. I think we need to wrap it up a little bit because of time, but uh, we really like to thank you here for the uh, episode and thank you so much for joining. Thank you, Sebastian. I enjoyed the conversation and you asked a lot of great questions. So thanks for your time. Thank you. All right, that was the episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure you give it a thumbs up and let me know in the comments or by taking me in the post, what were the biggest learnings for you in the episode? I'm always super curious about that. If the episode provided you a lot of value, make sure to follow and subscribe and share it with friends or others so they also have the chance to learn and grow themselves. All right, until next time. Cheers.